What's up, everybody? And welcome back to the Professional Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Gunter, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm laughing because we just got done recording the Run It By My Wife segment. And like most places in the country right now, it is ungodly hot. And it's no different here where we live. And I did not, in my infinite wisdom, turn on the AC in the podcast room. So while we were recording, it was a, uh, a swamp, more or less, probably nearly 90 degrees in here. And suffice to say, the conversation, uh, it got interesting. So if you're a diehard fan and you always look forward to that section, I think you're really going to enjoy today's conversation. Um, if you're new to the show, actually, that's a great point. Make sure to stick around each week. My wife, Sonia, and I, uh, I run what my key takeaways were by her at the end of the show, and we kind of discuss what we took from the conversation. And this week was such an easy episode to have that conversation because it was so interesting on so many levels. We were joined by Alex Harrison. He is a lead endurance consultant at Renaissance Periodization. I was really glad to be able to get someone from that team on this show. And that's because the, what they're doing with regards to strength and conditioning and diet and nutrition I really feel is needed in the space. And that's because everything that they're doing is backed in science and research. Uh, and they've, they've accumulated an incredible team of experts over there. So, you know, if you're looking for help in one of those programs, please do check out Renaissance Periodization. They actually partner with a number of our past guests, coincidentally. But what made this show, uh, quite frankly, I feel like I say this every week, one of my favorites was the journey that Alex has been on as an athlete. So Alex uh, was a bobsledder and a member of Team USA. He competed in multiple world championships. He was also a two-time All-American in college in track and field, both in the decathlon and the javelin. But he's not kind of this uh, inherently gifted athlete that you might expect when you hear those credentials. In fact, in his own words, right, he, he was really quite humble beginnings as an athlete. Uh, and he would say someone that in high school, you never would have pegged to be a world-class athlete, maybe let alone even a collegiate athlete. And what was just so interesting to hear was the way in which he had built himself into the athlete that he is today. Uh, I described him and he says correctly. So as a mad scientist, uh, so just pouring over research, pouring over like the best way to approach the sport, his training, to the point now where, I mean, he can go toe to toe, you know, with, with some of the most explosive athletes on the face of the planet. So I found that piece of the conversation incredibly inspiring because I think it's, it's encouraging to know that we probably have a little more control over our destiny than we might give ourselves credit for. But what also was so important, and I really, really hope people stick around and listen to hear the end of this, his mental approach both in the way that he approaches achieving success, but perhaps more importantly, the way in which he deals with setbacks and what could be considered failures and adversity. I thought it was an incredibly inspiring episode. So no matter what walk of life you're coming from, I think there's a lot to take away from this one. And it was just a really, really fun conversation. So on that note, if you are enjoying the show, please do pop over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review uh, and make sure you're subscribing so you get the show every week. To everyone who has reached out to me directly, thank you. I, it's so wonderful to hear that people are enjoying the show. I sincerely appreciate it. 
And it's been a pleasure to get to connect with folks all over the world, quite frankly, which I never anticipated. But uh, one of the things I do want to call out as a housekeeping item, I will be attempting to break the world record for most pull-ups with a 100-pound backpack in under one minute on August 7th. So the reason I call that out, one, it's it's fun, it's interesting, but more importantly, what I've been doing in that training is trying to incorporate a lot of the techniques and methods that have been introduced by past guests on this show. So I've been documenting uh, those approaches and those techniques on Instagram. So if you want to go back and check that out, go over to at the underscore professional athlete. I'm also going to be live streaming that on the day of August 7th. Tentatively, it's going to be in the afternoon. More to information to come on that. But I hope this kind of serves as a little bit of inspiration that, you know, this is stuff that you can actually take and apply to your own life. I'm doing it within the realm of fitness, you know, but there's so much here with regards to mental performance, sleep. Uh, I really hope that you're taking some of this stuff and trying to run with it at home. So without further ado, more to come on that, but let's bring Alex Harrison to the show. Well, Alex, man, thank you for joining the show. Yeah, it's, it's awesome to be here uh, chatting with you. Yeah. So uh, we were just catching up uh, completely coincidentally. You are in my hometown of Arlington, Washington. <laughs> Probably I, the I, biggest small world moment of my life, honestly. I would, I would have to say so. Like, usually when I say Arlington, people are like, oh, Texas is lovely. I'm like, no, not <laughs> Texas. Um, so, yeah, it's that's incredible. And so, you know, maybe we can start there, right? Because, uh, you know, in the intro, you know, I'm going to let everyone know you work for Renaissance Periodization. But it sounds like you've built a pretty flexible lifestyle for yourself. Yeah, working for RP or Renaissance Periodization um, has been has been awesome because it's allowed me to be mobile. Uh, I, my wife and I, I'll hit you with the the crazy point up front. We live in yeah, a we live in an RV, like one of those bus style RVs that old folks like do the <laughs> snowbird thing. Um, that's awesome. That, that's that's what we live in, and I'm I'm sitting in the back of my RV garage office right now on my my desktop. So. Oh, right on. So do you guys, I mean, fair to say you do a lot of traveling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Two, mo- two months in the summer we'll spend in Washington, and then the rest of the time we're, we might spend seven to 14 days roughly in, in one location and then jump to the next kind of just following the sun. Oh, cool. Well, and, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you, and maybe we can, we can, I mean, start here, even though it's a little out of order, but, uh, I mean, you are a competitive cyclist at this point in your life. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is certainly competitive. Um I so she cycles as well. Yeah, so she's she's a cat one cyclist, which there's five categories in cycling. Um cat yeah, one could, being cat cat yeah, one. Could you being explain sort of like, how that works a little bit? I was I was digging yeah. into that last night and I, I found it really interesting. Yeah, so uh cat one means like international level, professional level cyclist. Uh cat two is nationally competitive. Uh, cat three is uh, regionally competitive. 
Uh, Cat four is sort of like local state level competitive and Cat mm-hmm. five is beginner. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Cat three on the road uh, and Michelle's a Cat one. So she's, she's she, honestly, she's faster than me at everything that lasts more than a minute. So in, in like a one minute sprint, I can still probably beat her. Uh, right. But every, everything other than that, she will beat me. Oh, that's incredible. And, and what I found was so interesting is like the way that you move through categories. Like it's, and stop me if I'm getting any of this incorrect. It's not sure. inherently about how fast you are, right? There, there's all that's sorts correct, of like, yeah. kind of like criteria and qualifications that you have to meet to officially move to a next category, correct? Yeah, it comes down to mostly placing in races and winning races and scoring points by winning against uh, other riders and, and certain numbers of riders. And yeah, basically you just have to win races to move up. Got it. So if she's category one, uh, you know, wh- what sort of competitions is she taking place in? Uh, she competed in nationals this year. Um, and she's competed at like major stage races like the Tucson Bicycle Classic or Valley of the Sun down in Arizona. Um, and she's competed at some pretty uh, highly competitive criterium races, which are it's like okay. hot laps around a city block with a big show and like a big crowd. Um, so there's like um, BC Super Week is uh, a week straight of competition every night uh, under the lights with like people whining and dining, watching the race. Um, and is that, did you say BC, British Columbia? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. It's like one of the biggest criteria, maybe maybe the biggest criterium series in the world. Cash cash prizes for winning, like, I think there's like $150,000 uh, at, at the race series for oh, the women. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And so, you know, and I, I definitely want to dive into your athletic background because just that alone, I feel like we could probably speak for an entire hour. Um, you know, but are, are, it sounds like she's cat one, you're cat three. Um, are you, is there like a, an end goal in terms of like either some sort of event that you want to qualify for or some sort of like championship that ultimately like both of you are trying to work towards? Yeah. So for, for her, yeah, she's got really big goals and I, I'll, I would have to let her chat about those. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but for me, um, it's just for fun. I, I mean, I, okay. I enjoy going and taking money from a race and coming home with a hundred dollars. <laughs> I mean, it's not a professional <laughs> endeavor for me at all. Um, okay. I think I won 15 bucks and posted about, posted about it on Instagram last year. Hey, um, there we go. Or you win some coffee. Um, <laughs> so no, no, no serious goals for me. I'd like to like, uh, win a cat three Redmond Derby days criterium or something it's like a local local event um that that'd be fun but no i I, I don't i honestly don't train seriously enough anymore to uh to merit any big goals i just do it for fun i I do it mostly mostly because i love riding my bike i love hard 20 mile rides i love hard 100 mile rides uh, and i just love riding my bike with my wife well and like where you're at right now is such a beautiful part of the country like you know i summer it's amazing Man, you know, I try and tell people all the time because everyone has this picture of Seattle as gray, overcast, rains <laughs> all the time. And I'm like, OK, listen, in part, that's true. Yes, like, very. There, there is no better place to be in the world than like the Pacific Northwest in the summer. It's, For it's, sure. it's just beautiful. There's no humidity. It's green, partly because like, you're, you know, the bill came due in the winter. And yes, it did rain a lot. Yeah. Um, but oh, I'm jealous. I'm I'm over here in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. I technically work out or 
pre-pandemic, I used to work out in New York City. Okay, got um, it. But uh, yeah, I live in Eastern PA. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, minus like mountains, it, there's a lot of similarities over here. So I don't think I'll ever get to make my way back home. But, uh, you know, this is, this is a pretty good place to be stuck, so to speak. Cool. <laughs> um, well, so, you know, you talked about no longer cycling being like a, a truly competitive endeavor for you. But historically, um, you have you have a pretty cool athletic background. Uh, if you don't mind, could we start uh, just by kind of hearing a little bit about, um, you know, your journey to where you are today and, and some of the various stops along the way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I sort of I'll hit the, the pinnacle and then work work up to it. Um, I awesome. I competed for Team USA as a bobsledder. Um, I competed at the World Championships uh, in both two man and four man as uh, as a brakeman. Mm. Um, so that was not where I intended being when I was like 14 years old, dreaming of being a professional athlete. I thought I was going to be right. a baseball player. Um, so yeah. I, I, I never even made varsity uh, as a baseball player in high school. Um, <laughs> I, I was really small in high school. Like I, I didn't really hit my, my growth spurt or start lifting weights until my junior year of high school. So, okay. uh, yeah, never could really contribute on the diamond. Um, when you, when you weigh 110 pounds. Um, See, and that's, that's so interesting because like when I think bobsled and I think that's probably where this story ends up, but you think like explosive, incredibly powerful athlete. Yep. It's, yep. it's so interesting to hear that from your perspective, it's like in high school, even as a junior, like you didn't feel like athletically, you know what I mean? You, you yeah. were developed enough to make the varsity baseball team. I feel like people will kind of be like, whoa. Yep. Yeah, I was definitely a late bloomer. Uh, and I think that's part of what made my fire so strong for competition. Mm. I mean, I was always super competitive. Like I made like little baseball, little league, all-star teams. And I was, I was really competitive uh, in nature growing up, but I, yeah, I didn't really become gifted, uh, um, gifted athletically until I started lifting weights, which mm -hmm. was junior year. Um, and I went from, I don't remember how much I weighed at the beginning of junior year, probably 120, 130. And I think by the end of junior year, I was like 175, 180 pounds. Oh, and I had stacked on a silly amount of muscle. Um, <laughs> and I mean, yeah, it was just the gift of teenage testosterone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I got I got ripped and discovered myself as, as a – like I discovered what confidence was um, because of the weight room. And eventually I went out for the track team um, and I did have like a good arm in baseball. So I went out for the track team and started throwing javelin was successful there, but not like not incredibly successful. I didn't, I never went to state. I remember actually I, my, uh, was it my, my senior year, I went to the state qualifier, which I think was at your high school. Um, was it at Arlington? Oh man, what, remember? What, what, what year did you graduate high school? Uh, 06. 06. Okay, I was 05. Oh, okay, that was the year Holy after. Holy shit, we must have, so I threw Javelin. We, we must have. have okay, yeah, we, we, we probably were standing next to each other at one point. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, I'm trying to remember because I think my senior year qualifiers were at Arlington. People listening, they, they, like uh, people listen to the show in India. They're like, what are these two talking about? Yeah, Arlington, yeah. Washington. Did, um, did we mention that 
like this we didn't meet because we were from arlington or from the area around arlington we met through like a new york uh oh yeah no I, just, <laughs> I don't think we did no so we met through uh thomas white and you know i want to get thomas on the uh podcast as well because he also has just a great story and uh yeah we met through the the d10 decathlon different than the decathlon that i know you did in college um and he actually i think lives in houston or right outside of it and so oh, yeah okay. we uh, you yeah you and i actually got connected through someone i met in new york who lives in houston and now we're back to back to arlington yeah crazy <laughs> crazy small world um yeah so i th- i threw javelin there never qualified for state um and I think I ran the 400 and the 300 hurdles in high school. I pole vaulted, did some shot put, some discus. But, yeah, never never qualified for state, never was anything special in anybody else's eyes. Uh, hmm. But I had started I had started to think about the decathlon and, like, in the back of my mind, well, in the forefront of my mind, but I never really expressed it to, to a lot of folks. I, yeah. I, I wanted really big things in the decathlon because I started to see some of my potential. Um, and so I had like Olympic sized dreams in the decathlon, um, which was laughable at the time because I was like, uh, anybody, anybody who doesn't know what the decathlon is, it's 10 events in track and field scored on a scoring table. 9,000 is roughly the world record. I was scoring like 5,000. Um, and to, to even sniff at the Olympics, you have to be scoring like 8,300, 8,400. So I was like nowhere in the ballpark. So but there's had, some, gr- some ground to be made up. Yeah. So I had those Olympic dreams from age like 17, even though I, was, I wasn't I was in the ballpark. Um, and I, I went and did track at Western, did the decathlon there, and started to uh, excel a bit more. Um, yeah, I, I set the school record at Western Washington University. Uh, in the decathlon and the javelin. That's and, incredible. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I mean, Western, for those for those who don't know, Division two school. Um, and what I love about track is at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what division you're at because everything is so measurable. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and again, Western is a fantastic school in its own right as well. Um, on a side note, I remember, yeah, because growing up in the Western Washington area and I, I played football in college, um, I remember Western had a decent football program for a really long time. And they were one of those like first schools that just cut the program. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I, I saw those guys coming out of the, their, their, their meeting with the, I think it was the university president basically saying like teams cut and they were all teary eyed. It was pretty, yeah, what you, pretty wild. What, what do you do? It's crazy. Um, okay. So, so you start having a tremendous amount of success at track and, and let me ask you, so it sounds like you always had um, an incredible amount of like belief and confidence in yourself. And, uh, you know, I don't know how deep you're willing to get, but I mean, like for you, where, where did that come from? Because it sounds like, you know, developmentally, like it took a while for your body to catch up with like what you knew you were capable of. Yeah, I, I would say I probably lacked confidence through middle school and high school. Um, but I, I think I had the foundation for, for confidence laid by my parents. And I'm incredibly thankful for that because I think I was shown what, what unconditional love was by my parents. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's a gift that, um, that, that I definitely don't take for granted. And it, it, it set me up to, uh, I guess, I don't know how to put it, be, be free emotionally to believe in myself. And, um, yeah, it was just a gift from my parents. 
I love that. And, and that's one of those things that I think is so uh, just critical because there are a lot of parents who listen. Um, I, I get reached out from time to time, folks who listen and they want to know, hey, how can I apply this for my kid? And yeah. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm probably not the right place to start, but I'm happy to point you to some some people who know a lot more than I do. Um, but right, like that, that's just such a good piece of life advice. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like people respond so much better to positive reinforcement. Oh, and, one, 100%. And I've, I've, you know, you, probably you can relate to this as well. I've had coaches who take both approaches mm-hmm. on all ends of the spectrum. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, all the way from the dictator to maybe someone who, uh, did it wasn't, wasn't, uh, stern enough. Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, man, I mean, just, you know, when, when you get, especially a young athlete, when you put them in a situation where it's like safe to fail, but there's reinforcement, they know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Having, having the, the deep trust that your superiors, your family, your, your, your parents and your coaches will still love you when, or if, and when you fail. Um, but they are also like hoping to see you strive for excellence. That's mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. So what took place in college then uh, where you went from, you know, kind of like in your words, uh, you know, not not um, performing at anywhere near what would be considered someone on an Olympic track in high school to all of a sudden breaking, you know, Western's all time decathlon. And I think javelin record, you said as well, right? Yep, that's correct. Yeah. So what happened? Um, I started writing my own training plans. Uh, so I, I became interested in exercise science uh, primarily from a selfish perspective. I just wanted to run faster, <laughs> throw farther, um, jump higher kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, so I got into the exercise science program there, uh, started a, a reading research about like sprint track starts, like how, how far apart to put your feet in the blocks to, to optimize block exit velocity, that kind of thing. Um, hmm. So this is like I'm 20, 21 years old. I don't really know much about exercise science yet, but I'm digging into all the literature that's that applies to me. Uh, and that's sort of what allowed me to write training plans for myself and experiment on myself. Um, yeah, and become more successful uh, in in pretty much all avenues of athletics. Um, Interesting. Yeah, how, so. how, how much of it for you was, you know, kind of – coming into your own athletically versus it kind of sounds like programming and assessing like biomechanics um, and kind of like really just optimizing where your base level of athleticism was. I guess that's what I'm asking. Is it, you know, finally like you just hit kind of like your athletic peak and you really were kind of head and shoulders above a lot of folks? Or would you say it was more about like intelligent training, optimization of form, and like you said, start mechanics, things of that nature? Yeah, so I, that's a great question. I have always held that I'm, I am not the most gifted athlete. I hmm. have definitely been given some gifts. And I think like my parents are both uh, sort of like Northern European, big, big, strong um, well-muscled folks. Like I, yeah. I always tell people like my grandmother beat me in arm wrestling, like when I was <laughs> in high school. Um, so I, I come from, I come from some stronger folks. Um, but I, and my genetics are, are that, but I, I wasn't gifted with speed, like blazing speed. Like I was, I was easily when I was on the, on team USA for bobsled, I was easily the slowest guy on the team. Um, oh, interesting. but I just managed to, um, 
yeah, use my, I think, use my intelligence and and competitive drive to to test well uh, and end up contributing on the team really well um, when I, when I was on it. See, and I think that probably gives people listening like hope, right? Because if if the answer had just been no, you know, I just kind of came into my own and just <laughs> yeah. like athletically, I was just, you know, above everyone else. They'd be like, ah, oh, shit. Yep. But C- like, certainly there's a ton of athletes that do that. Uh, for sure. For sure. And I, I think what makes it so much more um, intriguing is the fact that through, um, you know, like dedication, research, practice, refining of techniques. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you were able to get to a point where you were you were part of like Team USA. Yep. Yep. Um, so actually, you know, what, so what ended up happening with, with track? So you get to a point where, um, you're breaking the school record. I believe you're a two-time All-American as well, correct? That's correct. So, uh, did, did you end up trying to pursue the decathlon at an Olympic level? Yeah. Embarrassingly so. So I, like I said, <laughs> I mentioned, I, I'm not the fastest guy and in decathlon, you have to be fast. Like I, I'm pretty sure I looked up. I looked up your high school 100 meter time, and I think it's fast. Oh, it's, it's faster than my all time best 100 meter <laughs> to give you a frame of reference. Um, so no, I'm I'm not super fast, and you got to be fast to compete at the Olympic level in the decathlon or even like Olympic trials level. Um, yeah. And so I I spent a couple of years after graduating Western with my master's in exercise science. I, I had spent six years at Western Washington University. I um, I spent a couple of years training for decathlon uh, yeah. and, and javelin uh, and trying to get faster. And I, I remember my last track meet at Duke two years after I had graduated from Western. So I'm probably 26 now. I'm two years into my PhD program at East Tennessee State University. And I go to Duke and I compete in the 100, sort of like test out my speed. How am I doing on all this development? And I'm no faster. And it's like, uh, I, I, so not, not only am I like crushed as an athlete, um, but I'm also like crushed a bit as a second year PhD student in sports science. Like, why can't I make myself faster? Um, and right. it was, it was hard. Uh, so it, it boils, it boiled down to, um, the first year of my PhD program, I spent doing some really stupid training, training too with too much emphasis on like body composition and hypertrophy, mm. muscle growth, um, and not enough emphasis on speed and power. And yeah. then second year, I, it just boiled down to like, I didn't have stiff enough, springy enough ankles and I was never going to, cause it's just not a genetic gift that I was given for that, like raw speed where you see, you see somebody run and, and you're like, that guy's really light on his feet. That, right. that was never me. Like I was never the light on his feet guy. Um, so at that point I just decided I'm going to, I'm going to see, cause I was like 205 pounds, uh, maybe 210 at the time. I just okay. decided I'm going to see how big and fast I can get just for the fun of it Ra- rather than, rather than seeing how well I can score at the decathlon or mm-hmm. shooting for the Olympic trials anymore. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to have a, a fun, like sort of science experiment and see like how, how much, how much muscle weight can I gain and still run as fast as I do? Uh, mm. And so I had no inclination that that might be good for bobsled at all. Cause I, I had heard that bobsledders were sort of freak athletes. Like, and I didn't really consider myself a freak at the time. I just thought I was a kind of fast, kind of strong, good throwing decathlon decathlete. Yeah. Uh, so uh, my wife, my wife heard that one of our, Oh, by the way, my wife was in the 
the same academic program with me at both Western and ETSU. And um, so she was in the sports science program with me. Um, And one of our colleagues, she heard that he was going to go do a bobsled combine. Um, And I, I I was like, okay, that's cool. Uh, And she, she said, well, I looked at the combine scores and that's, that's like an NFL combine, but it's for bobsled. Um, Okay. And she's like, I look at the combine scores and it looks like you are like pretty close to national team, national caliber bobsled level. And I was like, uh, get lost, basically, <laughs> respectfully, <laughs> not my wife at the time. Um, right, right, but, right. But um, and I didn't actually say get lost. Um, oh, but, no, we heard it here. It's on, it's on record. <laughs> but, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, but that's what I was thinking. I was like, I, I don't need another failure. I don't need an, I need I don't need another like years of struggle. Yeah. Um, from like my post-collegiate track career. And so she, she eventually, she kept pushing and pushing and talent ID is sort of something she's gifted at. Um, mm. She kept pushing and basically convinced me to go to this bobsled combine. Um, and so I, I was like, okay, I'll take the summer and I'll train, I'll train up. I'll shift my training from just being generally big and fast to, like just test prep for the bobsled combine which is uh, a few sprints an underhand shot toss uh, a broad jump and uh, let's see and a power clean and a squat uh, oh interesting so i trained up for that and i think the year that i did it i ended up scoring the number three uh rookie or the number three combine score in the country uh, that year which was a surprise uh i didn't really expect that um and then i got i got called by uh, one of the team usa bobsled coaches uh which i remember like being blown away um and he asked me to come to rookie push championships which is where they bring up all of the the combine participants who scored over a certain threshold and they bring them to lake placid new york uh, and have them (laughs) that's so great push a bobsled on a on a track uh, for time basically solo so you're mm. you're set up behind a sled you push it as fast as you can and they measure how fast that bobsled covers the next 35 meters or something like that uh, and i ended up winning uh rookie national push championships uh, wow which was another huge surprise for me and at that point i had no idea what that meant and i was just like well that went pretty well that's surprising um <laughs> Yeah, so, so go ahead. So, I mean, what, because to your point, and it's funny, now that we have Disney Plus, my kids just got introduced to Cool Runnings, nice. um, which, of course, was just one of my favorite movies as a kid. I but mean, yeah. you know, to your point, right, it, it like my perception of what makes uh, an elite bobsledder is like blazing speed. And because maybe maybe everything I know about bobsled is framed by Cool Runnings. So apologize if I my ignorance uh, no, here. That's a bit a, a strong perception in the sport too. Yeah. So you know what what was it uh, knowing kind of how calculated you are about everything? Like mm-hmm. what was it that kind of about your unique skill set that enabled you to be number one at the, at that what was it the push championships? Yeah, or the, the uh, I was number one at the rookie national push championships. It, sa- it sounds like it, there's more more about, I mean, kind of obviously, more than just like a need for sheer speed, right? There's some blend of like power, explosiveness, strength. Yeah, yep. 
Absolutely. So for the listeners who don't know me at all, um, my doctoral dissertation uh, was not complete at the time of of doing this rookie national push championships, but hmm. um, my the topic of my dissertation, like a 300 page paper, was uh, eventually it wasn't even conceived at the time of this push championships, but eventually became uh, what characteristics make uh, an international caliber bobsledder. So basically, what <laughs> what things go into uh, making you really good at pushing a bobsled? Um, yeah. So I wrote a 300 page paper on that. Uh, <laughs> super exciting stuff. <laughs> and surprisingly, it's got like it's been downloaded. I don't know 2,000 times, which is blows my mind. Uh, oh, incredible! But uh, anyway, I at the, at the time I went to rookie national push championships, I had no inclination of what made. Um, what made a fast bobsledder. I just figured hmm. you had to be fast and you had to be really strong and powerful, obviously, um, because the sled's heavy, presumably. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I learned while I was there that, uh, some degree of, well, a, a large degree of pushing technique was important. And I, I happened to have studied like acceleration mechanics a lot in my undergraduate and master's program. So I was, I was really able to, quickly pick up on the technique um, and become proficient in it, which I think gave me a leg up on all the other rookies because when we were called up to Lake Placid for this push camp, um, we were, we were there for one week. There was a one week training camp. And at the end of the one week we were tested. It was the national championships for rookies. And so uh, two big things played in my favor. Uh, One, I was smart enough to figure out the technique really fast. And Mm. two, I, uh, I was smart enough to back off the training in the second half of the training camp so that my fatigue would reduce by the time we tested. Uh, yeah. and I, I would actually be able to exploit some of the training that was given rather than just showing up to the national push championships dead tired from the two days that everybody had been pulling. Uh, so that, that played into my hand pretty well. That, and that's where some of the sports science came in handy because I, I was there as a second year PhD student in sports science. Um, I knew what I was doing. I'm I'm just envisioning like a mad scientist. Yeah, that's that's me. Basically, just uh, like finding like the areas for op, you know uh, optimization yeah. in the sport and just exploiting them. Um, so so that's incredible. So can you talk a little bit about uh, your actual bobsled career? Because uh, I mean, you you made Team USA and you competed at World Championships and, and had some success. Yeah, I. I, when I won that rookie national push championships, I had no idea what it meant um, until I remember uh, my PhD advisor, Dr. Brad DeWeese uh, at ETSU, uh, did have some connections with USA Bobsled. And oh. I remember him, he told, he told Michelle, my wife, well, my fiance at the time, I think, um, he told her as I was training um, training for the real national push championships that I got invited to because I won rookies. Um, mm. He told her he's not coming back. Meaning oh, this was down at ETSU where mm. I was in, in school still slated to finish my PhD a year from now. Um, and like I was supposed to be on track academically. Um, and right. <laughs> he, he tells her uh, like he's not coming back. Meaning he he's going to be recruited by the team and he's going to go compete internationally. And that was my first like, uh, sort of like, holy smokes, this is maybe bigger than I thought it was. Yeah. Uh, 
moment because he's basically saying, I'm going to give up my, like, without even talking to me, he knew that I was going to give up my PhD uh, for the time being and, and go compete, which right. ended, up, ended up being true. And yeah, I went up to national push championships uh, in Lake Placid again a month later, and um, I got second place there. Uh, and I, I'm trying to remember. Let's see, I got I got second place at nationals, and it was at that point the national team coach Brian Scheimer. This is the head coach of the U.S. national team. Like I, I've known who Brian Scheimer was, like since the i don't know 2002 olympics where he won a bronze medal in bobsled and it was like the first american four-man uh, bobsled medal i remember was, that i mean the the guy like everybody who knows anything about bobsled knows who brian scheimer is and people probably knew who steve holcomb was uh, the late steve holcomb um hmm. he's a he's a he was the usa one bobsled pilot like first first guy to win gold um for the u.s in like 60 years or something um incredible anyway brian scheimer head coach tells me like after the national team meeting where they discuss like um like what the next process is for determining the team they go over all of the selection and how the pilots are going to make selections and how there's going to be team trials and how like you're going to have all the rookies are going to have to contend with all the national team, former national team athletes. And it was a really, it was a big stressful meeting basically saying like, okay, you guys have a lot of work to do to get on the national team. And he walks up to me after the meeting and is basically like, you're on team, you're on USA one. So not just team USA, but the top bobsled of the three national team bobsleds, you are automatically on it. Uh, and so I'm like, I look at him, I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, this, I honestly, I thought that he'd either make it, made a mistake or it was like maybe over guaranteeing what he was qualified to guarantee. This is the head coach. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I did end up racing for Steve Holcomb and we won, we won a bunch of races on the North America cup. Um, hmm. And then, yeah, went over to Europe and I slid on everything USA 1, USA 2, and USA 3 throughout Europe and ended up at World Championships. I ended up on USA 2, which I think is a better place for a rookie bobsledder to be at World Championships. And yeah, it was a sort of a big whirlwind of six months going from like never, or well, maybe nine months of never having considered bobsled as a sport to do to I'm at World Championships competing against like people I've seen on TV talking, right. talking, shaking hands with John Morgan. Like if you know, bobsled, he's like the announcer who's announced bobsled for the last 30 years at the Olympics. <laughs> he like pays for my laundry in some Altenburg hotel. Like, I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> oh, I mean all in under a year. Yeah. Yep. Like you, like, it sounds like you went from thinking your athletic career, at least competitively was kind of wrapping up and you're yep. just going to start sure, experimenting sure. on yourself to now you're on an Olympic track competing yep. at world championships. Yep. So what is, what I've always been curious, what is training for the bobsled look like? And I, and I, I'm interested in everything from, you know, like, did, did you have to move? It sounds like you had to leave school for the time being. Yep. Um, but I, I'm interested in like specifically, like what sort of training are you guys doing to excel at that sport? Yeah. The, the simplest way to put it is we trained like hundred meter sprinters and Olympic weightlifters uh, with a, like a touch of bodybuilding. So okay. 
lots of speed, lots of strength and power, just like you would need in weightlifting, and enough bodybuilding to retain a really high amount of muscle mass because hmm. you the bigger you are the less weight you actually have to push in the sled the way the the way the sport works is you've got a four-man crew and for that four-man crew the total weight of the crew plus the sled uh dictates uh, there there's a total weight limit and so you can have ah. your sled weigh a large portion portion of it or you can have your guys weigh a large portion of it well intuitively you can figure out that big guys pushing a lighter sled will be faster than small guys pushing a heavier sled. Yep. So yeah, that's where the bodybuilding aspect comes in. Uh, and it pays to have that weight, not be fat. So you want muscle. Um, so that's, that's why you, you do some of the accessory body bodybuilding stuff, but the like 90% of the training is Olympic weightlifting type stuff and sprinting. Got it. And then the three guys who are not the driver, and now, like, okay, what do we call them? Break. What was the what was the term you used? Breakman. Yep. Breakman. Okay. Um, are they all serving generally the same function? Yep. Make the sled okay. go as fast as possible, as fast as possible. Got it. And then, how about the driver? Does he have to keep up his end of the bargain? Yeah. So the the drivers also are required to push, and it definitely behooves them to be <laughs> large, strong, fast, powerful men. Uh, but if you're an exceptionally skilled pilot sometimes you can get away with being like just an above average large strong fast powerful guy rather than sort of <laughs> world class got it got it so you know uh and now i'm just i'm just intrigued to understand like what happens once you actually get in the sled as a as a brakeman you get out of the wind first and foremost so okay aerodynamics is everything when you're going 60 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour without an engine because you can't overcome any of the losses of speed that you might create with sticking your head up um, because there's no engine to reaccelerate you you're relying purely on gravity to take you down the, the hill as fast as possible so you have to maintain your speed so when you're in the sled you just tuck your head tuck your shoulders and like hug the guy in front of you basically yeah. um, and you're, you're basically like four guys in a bathtub for real just like the cool runnings movie um <laughs> except except it's a smaller bathtub and you're really really up close to the guy in front of you and your head is buried in their back uh, and you're just like holding your breath uh hoping the driver has a nice trip down the track okay so do you have any inclination as to like when the turns are coming like how to lean um do you know what I mean? Is that choreographed yeah. or is that, is that more feel or is it, is there an element of study that goes into it pre a specific track? Yeah. So as Brakeman, you don't actually lean. So they got that wrong in the movie. Um, oh, that was, come uh, on. John <laughs> Candy. So uh, <laughs> we, we basically brace for the turns, but um, we don't lean because essentially you want to become a part of the sled. So just, hmm. you want to be a fixed object in the sled doing nothing um so sometimes yeah we definitely study the track to know when the turns are coming which direction they are so that you like don't get surprised by the direction that your head gets knocked into the sled wall because you okay. i mean it's a really rough ride um your head's getting hit on the, the sled cowling um and i mean you're getting jarred around a lot the ice isn't perfectly smooth it's not like a skating rink it's like yeah. uh it's sort of like being on a roller coaster with stutter bumps so like really <laughs> jarring um, and yeah you just you become a part of the sled and uh you can't see anything you just hold your breath and and 
hang on tight for a minute. Yeah. Oh man. It's just, it just looks, uh, it looks like a lot of fun. I don't know if it is because what you just described is a lot <laughs> more jarring than most people probably anticipate. I would but say I'm, I'm less just thinking fun. about the rush. It looks, yeah, it, is it the, okay. rush, the rush is sweet. Like you, you get down to the bottom of the track, and yeah, it feels like you just want to like rip your sled in half. You're on like a big, like emotional high. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what ended up happening? So you're, so you're running with team one, team two, team three, going to world championships. Um, the 2018 Olympics are on the horizon at some point. I'm not, I'm a little, I forget what year we're on here, but I mean, you're, you're on the path to go to the Olympics. Yep. Yep. I, uh, I, I decided to take a year off to just okay. train. Um, so not, it wasn't like a year off, like, Oh, I'm going to go just like start my career. No, it was a year off to just simply, you weren't train. going backpacking through Europe. <laughs> no, no, I was going home. <laughs> I, I actually built a bobsled push track, uh, behind a gym that my wife and I started. Um, oh, cool. So we, we, I built a facility that was multi-purpose. It, it allowed me to train and it allowed me to coach youth athletes and make a living, start making a living. Mm. Um, uh, which was super fun. So I, I took that year off um, with the intent of coming back the, the next year, like a big, a bigger, faster, stronger version of me. And the, the reason it was so pivotal, so key to, I think, take a year off to become faster and stronger and larger um, and more muscular, more powerful, all of that was um, it, when, when you're training, when you're training in season, with the bobsled team in these mountain towns in Europe, it's these towns don't have gyms. Like uh, you're, you're in, you're in a ski resort town that doesn't have a gym that has Olympic weightlifting or bumper plates or, or barbells. They just have like some, some machines. So the bobsled team brings weights. We bring squat stands, barbells and uh, weight plates to Europe in vans. Well, on a ship, uh, mm-hmm. When we ship over our sleds, we drive them around in vans and we set those squat stands up and those rusty barbells, like the Team USA sets up rusty barbells in the middle of a street or a parking lot or a parking garage uh, in like 30 degree temperatures and does our Olympic lifting in snow clothes. So it's less optimal training when you're on tour than when you're back home in the comfort of your own gym training at any hour you want with perfect nutrition and all of that. Yeah. So, well, and actually something I wanted to ask you. So after, you know, being on the bobsled team, did you alter your training at all um, based on either like direction from the team or did you continue to write your own programming and you'd kind of been able to hone in? And again, now, now I'm, as I say this, remembering your dissertation was on what makes a good elite bobsledder. Um, like t- to what extent did you continue to do your own programming and, and did you modify it at all? Yeah, 100% did my own programming until Olympic year uh, when okay. I actually had my wife uh, write my own my, my programming and she was the only person in the world I would trust to do that. Um, and I had I had Dr. DeWeese at East Tennessee State write my programming for a couple of months um, mm. because he, he was formerly the strength and conditioning coach for the Team USA bobsled team and he writes good programming, but it was just better to have um, I, I thought, and I, I still think that probably it's, it's good to have somebody who knows you really well and is also mm. expert at like training, sports science, nutrition, all of that, write your training programming. Um, so that's why I hired unofficially my wife to write all my programming. And honestly, when she started writing my programming, I got better faster than when I was writing my own training. Um, just because I think 
some honest outside influence was good. All right, we've got a deviate course here. I got I got to hear more about your wife because right now what I've picked up from this interview is she's an elite cyclist. She is writing the program for you uh, <laughs> yep. as as an international like a potentially Olympic bobsledder. Um, you know what, what what is she doing today? She also consults for RP actually uh, for awesome. Renaissance. Yeah, so she she's first. Uh, before she takes on a bunch of clients, um, she's she's got a few right now. But before she takes on a, a a larger client load, she's finishing up her RD. So she's got a master a master's degree in sports science. But um, oh, awesome. she's going to get her registered dietitian, uh, I guess registration or license, and so she's going to be a dietitian. Um, and so she's not only is she as good as me at sports science, but she's also better than me at, at nutrition coaching, even though I've, I've coached way more people than her. She's actually got <laughs> letters after her name that say she's good at coaching nutrition. <laughs> I can't even imagine what sitting around the dinner table is w- with the two of you. Yeah, it's, we've had some comments from people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. And then she's an athlete as well, I, yeah. I have to assume. Yeah, yeah. So she's... I mean, but beyond the cycling uh, yeah, prior so to she, that. She was a track athlete, um, a track athlete at Western as well. Uh, okay. I think... I don't know if she held any school records there. It was super close, um, but she also made the the bobsled team the year that I did. Um, no kidding. She hated bobsled. <laughs> she, it's it's a team sport, and she's like not really willing to be somebody's slave. Which on the women's <laughs> side, it was honestly there was a lot of like uh, hierarchy and uh, I would say drama to put it nicely. So she got out of there as fast as she could. Got it. Oh wow. So, so you take that year off, uh, leading up to the Olympic year, I guess, uh, I, I would love to hear kind of like what happens from then. Yeah. So I, I went back two years later for the Olympic year. Um, and long, long story short, I decided that, that second year, um, was going to be another training year and then I would show up for Olympic year. So I go back for national push championships for the Olympic year. Um, I'm as big and fast as I've ever been. I think, I was 225. I think I, I can't remember my exact numbers, but I think I power cleaned about 375 pounds and power snatched maybe uh, 285, 290. Uh, And I had a 40 inch vertical and uh, benched roughly 400 pounds. So I was, I was in the best shape of my life. I go back a 40 inch vertical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, how much of that was just built upon over time? Or I mean, well, you know I what I mean. Or were, or were you always a great jumper? I tested my vertical my first day of weight training class in high school, and I jumped 19 inches. <laughs> okay, so, so this is a, a progression. Yeah, a, a, let's see, a 14 year progression. Yep. Oh wow! And I mean, was how how did you kind of achieve that level of explosiveness? Because here's here's one of the interesting topics that's come up. Um, and I'd love to get you to weigh in on it. And I know I'm taken away from your story, so I apologize. No, no, but go for it. It's, you know, there's kind of that argument between like, to what extent uh, does like static weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting actually contribute to making a, a better, more explosive athlete? Mm-hmm. Um, and to what extent does it actually, uh, you know, what's the right word I'm looking for here, but actually like prevent someone you know, like there, there's that balance of like strength and speed and it's like you can go too far in one direction. Yeah, absolutely. That's I would say that's one of the bigger 
misconceptions I experienced as a baseball player. And okay. honestly, a lot of my coaches had huge misconceptions about that too. And I think that I'm a, a living, breathing example of th- those misconceptions being debunked big time. So people, hmm. people often think that sort of strength and speed uh, are on two different ends of a continuum. And I would yeah. argue, I would argue that muscularity and speed are on two different ends of a continuum. It's, it's very hard uh-huh. to be very fast and extremely muscular at the same time. But if you look at the fastest people in the world, they are without exception, some of the strongest people in the ranges of motion that they use in their sport Yeah, in the world. So like, Jonathan Edwards, if you're familiar with the triple jump, he's the world record holder in the triple jump. He weighed, I think, a buck fifty, sopping wet, real mm-hmm. skinny, lanky guy. He could power clean 335 pounds. No kidding. Like, I mean, he's he's six one, 150 pounds. Like, this guy is strong. That's incredible. Yeah. So if you if you want to jump higher, run faster, you should get strong. You shouldn't maybe get muscular but you should absolutely get strong and Mm. you basically do that by just reducing the volume of training that you do so maybe don't do so much bodybuilding style training don't don't do so many like sets in the 8 to 12 8 to 15 rep range do a whole bunch of training in like the three to five rep range and you'll get stronger over time and you will probably get faster and better at jumping over time and that's what that's what i did so and and it's interesting, right? Because uh, I mean, I met you through Tom and we do that decathlon. I, and it's, it might be a product of my age now. I'm 33. Um, to stay, well, let's say relatively quick. Yep. <laughs> and I use, I use relative uh, because I'm I, by no means elite. Um, you know, I, I dialed back the strength training portion. And now I'm wondering if that was uh, incorrectly so, because what I found is like, I just, I do put on weight much easier. So I think today, I don't know, I, I think I'm like 227. Oh, that's a great uh, point. You know, and so I'm like, ah, oh, like I need to kind of maintain this balance. Uh, and, I'm, and I find that if I do too much strength tra- training in my lower body, like I really kind of blow up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and so I've been doing a lot more and I just, I like doing plyometrics. Um, you know, so I do a lot more of that sort of training, or maybe I'll do like French contrast training. And now I, I'm wondering, you know, maybe should I not have, have stopped doing that so soon? Maybe I just wasn't applying it correctly. Maybe. Yeah. I think, uh, maybe reducing the total training volume, like how much, how many total sets, how many total reps of strength training that you're doing is super useful. And you're probably, you're probably experiencing, uh, a better exploitation of your physical capacity because you reduced your strength training. So you, you're able to like, you're able to jump higher next week when you mm-hmm. stop squatting. Like if you, if you want to, if you want to jump higher or run faster or, or be able to express any of your physical abilities, you have to reduce fatigue and you have to reduce conflicting uh, stimuli. So strength training right now like if i strength train if i do squats right now as an elite athlete who's super well muscled um Mm -hmm. i'm not going to jump higher tomorrow because of it but it does lay the foundation for six months from now a year from now when i start reducing my strength training volume and increasing my plyos or increasing my running for those things to get way better yeah so that, and I th- I feel like that's like a good breadcrumb there that you, you just kind of said. So it's like, th- there does need to be that reduction and stop me if I start putting words into your mouth. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it sounds like there does need to be that reduction as, as you get closer towards your competition and you want to actually like express that speed. 
um, yep, absolutely. You know, via the strength gains. Okay. Uh, so I think that helps provide some clarity and, uh, you know, I definitely, I definitely want to wrap up, uh, not wrap up, but I, I definitely want to be able to let you finish your story about the Olympic bobsledding, but maybe yeah. this is a, a great way to dovetail into what you're doing today. Cause I think people would be really interested to hear about what you do with uh, Renaissance periodization. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So the, 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 what do you call it? The, the tapering or the, the reduction in training volume that is necessary for exploitation of the speed that you've laid the foundation for that mm-hmm. all that all comes into like a good annual plan so the bulk of mm-hmm. an annual plan should be spent laying the foundation for something that you're going to exploit when you go to compete peak whatever um, yeah and yeah strength training is is a, a, pr- a pretty I'm, i won't put it i'm not going to beat around the bush strength training is is the best foundation for just about anything, um, yeah. whether it's speed, uh, muscularity in the future, endurance, even, um, mm. yeah, strength training lays the foundation. So that's what I do with a lot of my clients. Um, a lot, and honestly, like I have a ton of clients who come to me from CrossFit or functional fitness, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm. and their goal is, is either compete better in that, uh, fitness sport or, or be better at, X, Y, or Z, be better at running, be better at cycling, or maybe they want to look better. Um, and almost always I have to tell people, uh, and I do tell my clients and convince them of this, that you're going to have to strength train more. Like you, you have mm. to reduce, you're going to need to reduce the amount of time that you spend doing a wad or reduce the amount of time that you spend doing plyos or reduce the amount of time that you spend running just a touch, um, and emphasize the strength training more, um, to, to be able to sort of break through the plateau that you've been stuck at for the last two years because you've been doing the training that is purely conducive to the thing that you want and never mm-hmm. laying a foundation for it. Ah, that's great. That's great. That, and that, that makes a lot of sense, I think. So yeah, so, I, coach, I coach a lot of folks one-on-one um, at, at RP. That's that's sort of like the, the meat and potatoes of my job is I, I write diet and training plans for people um, – remotely send them via email and then I work with them on uh, sometimes their technique via video video or or just making sure their reps are in the right range for the training that I write and then I monitor their progress that sort of thing yeah and and so what what sort of athletes are you working with and you mentioned you know CrossFit or people in functional fitness but and the reason I ask and what I think is so interesting is you have now kind of like well I mean really three backgrounds because you were a decathlete but uh, you were on that very explosive end of the spectrum for bobsled but now um, you know in addition to the cycling that you do you also compete in triathlons so are you writing programs uh, for athletes on all ends of the spectrum Yes. So I am, I am the lead RP endurance consultant, mm-hmm. which is like such a huge contrast to what the rest of my life spent doing before age like 29, 30 was. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm that's kind of what now. I was getting at. Like, I was like, this is so interesting because he's the endurance guy. Yep. Yet he is like a world-class athlete in a very specific explosive sport. Yeah. In a sport that lasts where your physical effort lasts five seconds or less. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I, uh, because my wife was uh, interested in triathlon after doing her short stint with the bobsled team, which mm-hmm. totally unrelated skills, like you just mentioned. So that was a big transition. She she wrote her own programming for the first year of her training. It was sort of her retirement sport um, in triathlon. But I, once she 
she's like started winning some stuff. Um, she trains super hard. Um, yeah. I, I was like, well, Hey, I can like, I can learn a whole bunch about, well, I didn't tell her I started learning a whole bunch about <laughs> endurance. And, and when, when a person like me, like I'm in case you haven't noticed the mad scientist thing is like a, that's a pretty good analogy for how I live. Um, so yeah. when I start researching something, I spend probably more hours than most people would spend on Google scholar reading the literature about that topic. So like mm. figuring out like what types of training improve VO2 max for the least amount of fatigue, where they fit in the macro cycle, like the annual plan, um, mm -hmm. how to, how to actually structure training programs around the athlete's psychology, like in their, their, um, what's the word? Like their predisposition to like responding well to certain types of training. Um, yeah. Now, you know, can I ask, we had, yeah. uh, it, 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 we had Christian Thibodeau on the podcast. Um, and I feel like when you said that he has a system called neurotyping, hmm. is it in a similar vein of trying to understand, you know, like what are they predispositioned to respond to? I think more, more from a, a psychological sense, uh, rather than a, a nervous system sense. So mm. more, more like, um, like cer certain athletes, if, if I go tell them to run three miles at threshold, like they will lose their mind because that is the most <laughs> boring thing in the plant on the planet for them to do. Um, yeah. And those, those athletes often just like they quit endurance training because it sucks. <laughs> and they're like, they're like this is boring. Um, but they often like my wife, my wife is one of those people. She, she's, if, if I tell her you need to do 20, something for 20 minutes straight, it's like, that's like pulling teeth and she mm. competes in bike races that are like three, yeah. hour, three hours long. Um, so she has to be able to do steady state things, uh, like intense things, uh, with intense pain for long durations with a great amount of focus, but mm -hmm. you can get at those things physiologically by doing things like intervals. Um, I mean, there's no shortcut. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to be in pain. You're going to have to like push yourself, uh, really hard and like stick with it when it gets, uh, pretty intense and the pain, the pain becomes like, uh, not life altering, but like serious, um, mm -hmm. you're going to have to, you're going to have to do that, but you can break it up into intervals that still stimulate the systems that you need. Um, and so that's, that's what I spent all that time learning about was like how to write training programs for people like who don't, who aren't Lance Armstrong or Chris Froome or, or Mo Farah. Like they're not, they're not these people who are, are just predisposed to enjoying three hours of doing the same thing nonstop. Yeah. Like most of us don't enjoy that. Sure. The best endurance athletes in the world usually do, but if you want to be really fit, you can get really fit by doing shorter things more intensely with intelligent design. Interesting. So it's funny because it's like, and maybe I'm overgeneralizing it. I, I, you know, we've often hear about things in terms of like slow twitch athlete versus mm -hmm. a fast twitch athlete mm -hmm. and someone who's slow twitch naturally, uh, lends himself to performing better in an endurance event. And now yep. using your wife as an example, right? She yep. also was on the bobsled team. So I, you know, most Very people, do right. Yet it sounds like, and I don't know if overcome is the right word. Uh, is, maybe, is it maybe like, utilize oh okay yeah can you talk about that a little bit yeah so she 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 takes advantage of her fast twitch like speed power ability on the bike and it's mm. super easy to take a fast twitch well not super easy not easy for them easy as a coach it's easy to take a fast twitch athlete and turn them into a good endurance athlete 
it's not easy to take a slow twitch athlete and turn them into a strength power or speed athlete. You can okay. turn them into a strength athlete maybe and certainly a muscular athlete. Um, but it's it's harder to take a slow twitch athlete, impossible to take a slow twitch athlete and make them Usain Bolt. Yeah. Uh, but you can take you can like if you could convince Usain Bolt to run a marathon and actually train smart for it, he'd be a pretty good marathoner. And I know that there's lots of people that would love to debate me on that, but the truth is you can convert fiber types from fast twitch to slow twitch or slower hmm. twitch and more oxidative, more aerobic, but you can't you can't go the other way. Um, yeah to a greater extent than your genetics like first allowed you. So if you're born with like 50-50, you're not going to have more than 50% fast twitch fibers ever in your life. Usain yeah. Bolt was given the gift of, let's say 80, just generally 80% fast twitch fibers, 20% slow twitch. He he can have, like he, he could train for a marathon and convert a ton of those fast twitch fibers to really oxidative aerobic fibers and develop a huge aerobic fitness uh, and and also reap the benefits of still having a great kick at the end of the race. Hmm. So that makes me wonder, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know to what extent it's, you know, snake oil and, and just marketing, but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, is there an opportunity for people, um, whether they're still trying to be a, a highly competitive athlete or maybe they're, you know, I hate to say like thinking about kids cause I don't want to send a bunch of kids people start experimenting on their kids uh, <laughs> i think there's enough pressure on youth athletes as there is but 100 is is there an opportunity to like actually assess what your general ratio is of like fast for slow twitch oh sure yeah are, are you the fastest kid on the playground if you are you're pretty <laughs> fast twitch i'm a, i'm dead serious like if yeah. you the reason the reason michelle actually quit track and field is because she she went to a, a local, local track meet. This is, she's like done two years of post-collegiate training, just like I did. She went to a local track meet and she looked around and there were kids who clearly had no training, like mm -hmm. no nice equipment. And they were just slaughtering other kids who like, whose parents might've invested a lot in them. They had all the nice gear. They had like yep. beautiful technique and, they were just slower. The, the beautiful technique kids were just slower than the other kids. And mm. Michelle, Michelle remembers thinking like, okay, I, I've been competing at sprinting for the last 12 years of my life and I'm where I'm at today. I've done some really smart training to get here. I'm not elite now. Like it's never going to happen. I wasn't, I wasn't that kid. I've always been the kid who's been grinding. She yeah. certainly wasn't gifted from her parents, but or and didn't have like nice sprint spikes when she was growing up, but she was the kid that like spent time studying technique and spent time like rehearsing and rehearsing in the winter in the snow and like she grind she grinded for everything she had mm -hmm. and yeah she still wasn't the fastest so it was that realization that uh, yeah, that led her to actually move on and become go go do endurance sports which she loves now. Oh. Okay, so it's it's fairly uh I guess the right word is obvious um to kind of what end of the spectrum you kind of uh, find yourself, right? Like yeah, if absolutely. if you are the fastest kid on the playground quote unquote, yep. you're probably mostly fast twitch. 100%. Uh, and then there's probably a lot of people who are kind of in the middle and you just kind of figure it out as you go and then there's some people who are obviously more like slow twitch dominant, lend themselves yes. better to endurance. Okay. Yep. All right, so I don't need to start a fast twitch, slow twitch testing company, is what you're telling me. That's correct. Yeah, you can just go watch kids. Yep. 
Uh, okay, whole other set of problems there, but point taken. I would say uh, I would say the only exception to that is yeah. Uh, if if the kid or person happens to be overweight, um, they mm. might actually be fast twitch and still be slower than. But if if uh, barring being overweight, then yeah, that holds absolutely true, and it's probably the best test. Like how fast can you run from here to there? That's the best test for fiber typing when you're a kid. Got it. Got it. Okay. Listeners will absolutely bombard me with email if, if I don't let you finish the story about what happened with your bobsled career. Oh, yeah. It's um, very anticlimactic. I, I, I'll, I'll well, <laughs> okay. But I completely derailed you, so I apologize. But uh, okay. yeah, I, I would love to hear because it sounds like you know everything was gearing towards 2018. We, we'd love to hear what, what kind of what, what happened. Yeah, so I I did uh, well enough at the uh, the Olympic uh, national team push championships to be in the pool of selected athletes for Team USA. So I get selected by the USA two pilot, uh, who mm. happens to be the same pilot that I pushed for back in 2015, um, th- two or three years earlier at World Championships. Um, I get selected by him to basically try out for his sled, uh, mm. and the guy I was trying out against was uh, ryan bailey essentially um the the other guys for the two other spots on his sled were sort of i think uh, picked at the time um so it was me against ryan bailey and uh there there was another guy who who also made the team but uh, long long story short ryan bailey's uh oh gosh i think he's a silver medalist in the 100 meter dash at the olympics um, yeah i was just <laughs> pulling him up yeah i was so like i know that i know that name why do i know it oh yeah he's, he's like and ran he's a 988. Over the, yeah, he's run 988, and he's also the biggest sprinter ever to set foot at the Olympic Games in the 100 meter dash. He's he's oh really? Yeah, yeah. He's like six five two twenty. Usain Bolt is much leaner, much more uh, slender of frame. So Ryan Bailey is like uh, a gift to bobsled. Um, oh wow. Anyway, so we're we're trying out for this Team USA sled, and on the first push. Uh, I'm on the left side and I sprint down the the ice track and I feel my left foot. No, gosh, it's been a few years. I feel my right foot crack and I feel Uh. the skin of, sorry, trigger warning folks, uh, (laughs) the skin of my, my ankle, the skin of my foot folds like at the front of my ankle because my foot like comes up to my shin basically Uh. Um, because I broke, I broke, the bone called your calcaneus, uh, in my heel. Um, yeah, I snapped that in half, uh, when I jumped into the sled. And so I jump into the sled and I ride down this short hill. Thankfully, thank God I was on a push track and not an actual bobsled track. So the push track, you just go down and then you come up and the sled stops. There's no, uh, there's no like one minute long ride where you have to hold your breath and tuck your head. So I just, I stood there in the sled in intense pain. I couldn't put any weight on my right foot. Uh, and I, I just raised my hand and said, uh, I got to get out of the sled at the other end of the push track. Um, and I knew, I knew at that moment, I was like, well, that's that's the end of the road. Uh, oh. I, I'm going to get to go home now and spend time riding my bike with my wife, which I've been looking forward to for three years. Because as, as a strength, an elite strength power athlete, you actually have mm-hmm. to limit the amount of cardio that you do if you want to optimize your strength, power, and speed which you don't have to do if you're not an elite athlete. Maybe a little yeah. if you want to like spend some time really muscling up, but not to the extent that as an elite athlete that you do. So I, I had spent years limiting the amount of like fun endurance training that I did. I never got to go on bike mm. rides with my wife. I didn't go hiking. I didn't, or I did very little hiking. 
and those are all things i love being from like the pacific northwest i love being outside yeah Uh, so it was like a snap moment when my foot snapped uh that that i knew okay that's that's the end i get to go home and i'm gonna focus on the positives and move forward Uh, so just with just a freak accident yeah, so I actually, in hindsight, I had been running on a stress fracture uh, for the uh, better part of two years, um, and I, the symptoms for a stress fractured calcaneus are almost identical to a sprained ankle. So I mm. thought I had like a mild low grade sprained ankle um, for two years, <laughs> and uh, it turned out to be a fracture, and I didn't find out until that moment. Oh man! Yeah. So pretty, I mean, mentally. Wild. It sounds it sounds like you have a very positive uh, and I would even dare to say resilient outlook. Um, I like you to know, think so. Is that is that just part of your makeup or is this just like now having the benefit of a couple years to reflect back? Oh no, that was that was for real. That's what happened in my head at that time. I'm very yeah. yeah, I guess forward forward thinking, positive. There's no sense in like dwelling or resonating with negative stuff. It's just not mm-hmm. comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it's it's only going to harm uh, future outcomes. The best thing to do is ask yourself where you are today and uh, like what's the best case scenario moving forward. See, that might be the most interesting thing we've talked about today because I think there's a lot of folks who, when something like that that, that derails something they've been working towards, you know, they they sink down into that deep hole. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, and and I guess is that something that like has always just kind of been intrinsic for you? Is that something that uh, is just a mindset that you've established for yourself, and now it's kind of become second nature? Or I mean, I mean maybe you've never even thought about this. Oh no, I've thought lots about it. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I would. I would great, maybe great maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, I having coached close to a thousand people now, one on one with RP, I have had. Uh, the luxury of of sort of seeing into the psychology of a lot of folks and seeing how certain people are resilient and uh, how their results end up panning out three, six, 12 months from now versus people who maybe are less mentally resilient, either by intention or by by accident and seeing how their results pan out less well. Um, Hmm. So yeah, I would say I've naturally, I've always been generally slightly more positive than negative but it's been it's become very intentional uh in the last five years or so um and and i think with great results there's it's just not productive or useful or helpful to think negatively about your situation um yeah it's just perfectionism is the death of joy and yeah you just if, if you're constantly focused on what you did wrong you're unlikely to move forward at the same rate that you would if you focus on what you did well and just quickly learn from what you did wrong and let that inform future decisions. But yeah, you'll be much more productive as a human if you can force yourself to focus on like celebrating wins and just quickly learning from what you did wrong rather than sitting with it and resonating on it and like really um, letting it form your attitude. It's just Mm. yeah, counterproductive. I love that, man. And I actually think that's probably a great, great place to wrap it up. And I I hope folks take a lot from that Uh, because I think, you know, if you can truly adopt that mindset, that serves you well in life, because no matter what you're (laughs) you're going after, where you at in the stage of your life, like challenges are probably the only constant. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, so uh, taking on that kind of mindset. And I love to hear that it's like an intentional choice. I, you know, what, what I've really enjoyed about this conversation um, is hearing that much of what you've accomplished has been through education, choice, uh, strategy. Yep. And I, I hope that for folks, I know it is for me, um, like I'm fired up to, I don't know, go do something. I got I to work here, actually. <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> I got to go try and I got to go try and sell some tech, um, but it's got me fired up. It's like, you know what? No, I, you have control over your destiny. Um, everyone is, you know, has some sort of ceiling, but you have a say in like how close to that ceiling you can get and how yeah, well you can kind absolutely. of excel within a given uh, skill. Or And that ceiling is probably cool. higher than you think. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, man, this has been fantastic. And I didn't even get to ask you all the stuff I was going to ask you about what you're doing at Renaissance. So maybe someday we'll have you back on the show if you're up for it. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, you know, for people who who want to know more about you, um, would like to follow you, wh where's a good place for them to do that? I'm on Instagram. I've got uh, my, we can maybe link to my screen name, Xander P. Harrison. Uh, yep. And yeah, the RP website, renaissanceperiodization.com. Perfect. Okay. I'll make sure to link to both of those. Well, uh, thank you, Alex. I, I really appreciate it, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's been absolutely my pleasure. And mommy. You better go ask mommy, daddy. <laughs> Alrighty. So I'm a little agitated. Yeah, you are agitated. <laughs> I'm, you are. Like, I'm like tired. It's hot up here. Should we tell the people what you're wearing today? <laughs> yeah. Kenny is actually naked. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, the last few times that we've done this, and I just recorded an actual podcast yesterday, mm -hmm. I think I lost five pounds up here. I was dehydrated, yeah. I was sweating my can off. It's hot in this attic. And you know what? The kids are down. I'm over here, okay, in my skivvies. <laughs> Because I know it's going to keep me cool. We've decided that we're going to start doing these yeah. on Instagram live. So Kenny will have to start wearing some clothes. But you know, it might be a bigger draw. Ugh. Show up. You're not allowed to do that. Show, I'm gonna, okay, then I'm going to show, show up, up in my and studio. see what's on MeUndies. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a sponsor at some point. Ooh, that would be actually uh, good marketing. Write that down. Okay. Write that down. Or don't. Down. She's not writing anything down. Uh, man, another good one. Yeah. I'm telling you, like I walk out of these every time and I'm like, was that the best one I've done? And yeah, I shouldn't I mean, say I've done, but like I walk away from some of these conversations, like really motivated. This was one of them. Super motivating. Yeah. He's, he, he was like a sneaky, cool story. I was, sneaky, I didn't know cool what story. to expect, but. Well, I knew it was going to be interesting because I knew enough about his background like, okay, so just so intriguing to me, bobsledding. Yeah. Right? And I, 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 I talked about it in the show, but I really think like Cool Runnings was such a pivotal movie of my childhood yeah. that like I just, I don't know, I have this fondness for it. But I also have a lot of these like false, I think, uh, expectations of what it takes to be a great bobsledder. Some of them are right, but I think he disproved a lot of that. Um. But what was so amazing and unanticipated was the fact that, you know, I have it written down here and I know you and I agree on this, like he was a late bloomer, so to speak. Yeah. Why are you looking at me like that? you're naked. Oh. <laughs> Is that going to be a problem? It's distracting. <laughs> it's the way I came into this earth, baby, and that's the way I'm going to record these podcasts. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, he was a late bloomer. And, you know, and you and I were talking about it right before this. Like, it's crazy that, you know, I think he said he didn't even end up making like his varsity baseball team. Now, that might have been because he just like, you know, focused his efforts elsewhere. Because I think he started getting more athletic when he started lifting as like a junior. Mm-hmm. But it was just so um, atypical to not be that stud high school athlete and then go on to college and be an all American yeah, and hold multiple school records and be on a path where like you're training for the Olympics. Yeah. It's really like that alone would have been like a really fascinating story. But then he kind of hits this point where he has a realization that he's like, you know what? He's like, I'm not getting faster the way I want to. Maybe it's time. Like I just change course. I just have fun with this. And like through this process of kind of like not giving up, but kind of like retiring this one dream, all of a sudden this new Olympic dream just kind of, so to speak, falls in his lap. And he finds out that he has like built himself into this like bobsledder. On accident. On accident almost. Yeah. So cool. Well, unintentionally. Unintentionally. Yeah. Not on accident. Yeah. Um, it's hot. Maybe I just take everything off. Ugh, no, Kenny. Mm, we'll see. So late bloomer, we both had that. Um, but what's been pretty fun is our takeaways. Yeah, they've been matching up. They're starting to get more and more aligned, and they're not I'm like impressed with myself for that. As you should be. I'm impressed with you, quite frankly. <laughs> because this is this is your bread and butter you love this stuff <laughs> well but you're pulling like hard-hitting takeaways yeah you know you're not going for like the easy high level st- like you could have been like oh i thought it was interesting that he was a late bloomer you're like and i'm not going to steal your thunder actually why don't you just why don't you just roll in with the first takeaway that you hit me with when we sat down today um sure uh he said a misconception that a lot of people including yourself have <laughs> fallen well, prey to is that strength and speed are on opposite ends of the continuum. Mm-hmm. But he would argue that it's more muscularity and speed Ugh. that are on opposite ends. Boy, why am I the only one in my underwear here? Oh, Kenny. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but I, that was one that I had written down almost verbatim, and I thought it was awesome. And I, yeah. I've had listeners reach out because we've had guests who have very different perspectives on this, right? Mm-hmm. We have strength and conditioning coaches, you know, Chris Barnard, uh, Chad Wesley Smith most recently, right, where strength training is a critical component of their workout plan, right? So mm-hmm. people hear that. They're like, okay, maybe that falls in the realm of more traditional. And now I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically because Chris and Chad would both be like, you're oversimplifying what I do. But yeah. then you had someone like Gavin in episode eight who was like, there's not a place for that anymore. I love how you remember the episode numbers too. Yeah, well, it's because like I put together the episode art, or I used to. Um, so they're like burned into my memory. I have the visual burned yeah. into my memory. Um, but we have a new member of the team. Maybe if he sticks around another week, I'll actually mention him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I know he's not just going to cut and run. <laughs> um, but yes, strength for speed continuum. So I think that one is going. It's always going to be a contentious topic. But for someone who quite literally as a mad scientist built themselves into an elite level athlete. Yeah. He said like, no, look at what I did for myself. He's like, I think I've disproven that. Yeah. Because it was critical to the gains that I made. Right. I think that was a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. Something that we were talking about, and I think you get a kick out of, uh, 
he said the benefit of having someone else actually writing your programming. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, how many credentials does he have behind his own name, right? He has a master's in exercise science. Yeah. And, uh, it was interesting to me that he actually has someone else write his programs and he thinks there's a benefit in that. You think it's because he's just madly in love with his wife. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yep. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is what you said. Um, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, she sounds incredible. I know. I think there's certainly probably going to be, an, the there's going to be an email going out requesting her attendance on this podcast in the future. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. she's doing some really cool stuff. So I'm going to be keeping an eye out on the, uh, that, of, uh, keeping an eye out for her as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, but that's interesting, right? It's like even someone who is quite literally an expert. And I mean now like through schooling through, you know what I mean? All the credentials that you need, he still has someone else program for him when it's something that he feels is like yeah. training to be an Olympian. Uh, well, she was also the one that pointed out that he should right. be trying bod sled. Exactly. Yeah. And that, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. He said she has a really good um, eye for identifying like talent. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting that, you know, he overlooked that in himself. Yeah. Maybe, you know, and sometimes it does take someone else to kind of like be like, no, hey, there's something here. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't put this together until just now. Adam Nelson said the same thing. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. The guy who won the gold medal yeah, in the yeah. shot put episode 12. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a really weird, unique ability to remember my podcast episode numbers. That's unfortunately my superhero power. He said the same thing, though, that he was interviewing for corporate jobs. Like yeah. he was done. And he had had a coach that had been telling him for years, like, there's something here that I have not seen before with all the folks that I've trained. Like, you have something special. Mm -hmm. And Adam overlooked that in himself. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting now to think, um, you know, Alex said the same thing. So, yeah, sometimes it takes an outside perspective. As does do a lot of things in life. It's very true. What comes to mind immediately? You have an example. What is it? No, I don't. I'm no, come on. People want to know. No, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> you hate being put on the spot. I hate it when you I do know. that. I know. Sorry. Uh, okay. Two down. Two good takeaways. Strength for speed continuum. Benefit mm -hmm. of having someone else write your programming. Mm -hmm. I'll just add this. Wait. No, that was three. That was three. What was yeah. the third? The first one that you said. Oh, late blooming? Yeah, late blooming. I'm just chit-chatting there. Oh, okay. That's just fun. Oh, okay. That's a bonus. If you want to take that away, by all means. Okay. I'll give you one more. Go ahead, Kenny. We've got more on the docket. Last point on that, though. I will say you have to be really clear on, you know, what are the resources that you have available, right? If you're someone who has a full-time job and you have kids, what you don't have is a ton of free time. So if you do have goals that are athletic in nature and they're they're big, do them before you have kids. Do them before you have kids. That's number takeaway number three. Uh, no, but it's like, look, offload that to someone else who's an expert. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm the older I get, ironically, the more I'm like tap into coaching. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like I uh, save myself the time, save myself the energy. And like if someone else is an expert in it, like let them do it for me. You don't have time to research that. 
No, and I enjoy it, but I'm like, you know what? Like, where is my time best spent? It's probably changing diapers. It's probably changing diapers. My life is just nothing but changing diapers. <laughs> and pe- people probably be like, are you in the gym all day? And I'm like, eh, not really. It's mostly just diapers and getting bossed around by a five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, last one. Man, there was a couple. And I'm, oh boy, I'm really torn. Like, even as we do this live, I have two written down. <laughs> Kenny does one diaper a day. Just, I want to make that clear. <laughs> That's what you're worried about? We're trying to do go, takeaways, go woman. Go on, go on. Boy, what a wingman you are. Holy cow. People are like, what is she doing? Yeah, like, what's she doing all day? She's just. I actually don't do diapers. She's just co-hosting podcasts That's all day. Draw the line. <laughs> uh, by the way, someone was in my podcast room. Okay, a ghost? Well, any, well, oh boy, that's a whole other conversation we could have. Uh, no, but I, I just looked over to my left and I realized there's one of those little like children's pushing walkers. The little, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I see it. That yeah, wasn't, that that wasn't in be, here earlier. I just got goosebumps. It was a ghost. Yeah, someone's getting, someone's getting a stern talking to in the morning. Okay, I know which way I'm going. I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip one. Okay. Adversity. Mm-hmm. I loved his take on adversity and I think it is so important when he broke his foot. Right. And actually I think he had a stress fracture that he, fracture that he had been training through. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he had kind of thought it was something else, a sprain, um, something that wasn't as serious as it was, but you know, as he's in the final stages of training and, and trying to make the team for the actual Olympics now. So he's dedicated years in this pursuit right as he is on one of these runs he breaks his foot and he just knows like it's over mm-hmm. all this time all this energy all this sacrifice right cuz he took time off school yeah it's over and he makes the conscious decision at that moment to like see the positive in it not like yeah. woe is me oh everything i've been working for my dream is a lot but you know what i mean he mm-hmm. could have just like gone to that place where he feels sorry for himself and he went the complete opposite direction. Now you would argue <laughs> that he just loves his wife so much. He missed her. He just missed her. <laughs> Maybe that was true. You wanted to go ride his bikes together. I know. Ride their bikes together. This is just like your dream. Just you and me on a couple California cruisers. I don't think that's what they're driving around, but <laughs> no, I think they're doing something a little more intense. That would be nice. So I want one of those bikes with like the big handlebars and a basket in front. I could see you and I on a tandem bicycle. I feel like if you could figure out a way, you would like to hold hands while riding a bike. (laughs) I feel like there's no length that you would not go to to constantly have (laughs) some sort of canoodling happening (laughs) at any given moment, no matter how exhaustive the exercise. Maybe. <laughs> mm, you're like, oh, that actually sounds really nice. I'm going to think about that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I asked him, I was like, is that something that was just kind of like inherent or is that like a decision? And he's like, no, it is 100% a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't see the value in like spending time and like worrying or wallowing in what could have been. Mm-hmm. I am guilty of doing that from time to time. I think everyone is. Yeah. Uh, but I think folks listening to this. Give us an example, Kenny. Oh, give us an example. Um, <laughs> I was kidding. But 
Now, I want to give you a good one. Okay. I would like to give you a good one. Uh, you know, actually, I'm pretty good at this, too. Yeah. And it's weird. I actually feel like I'm at my best when, like, some crazy shit happens. I do, too. I mean, not me, but I think that you are. Yeah. Like, if, some, if something really shit. bad no. happens, I typically, like, I just get super focused on, yeah. like, how to, like, get out of it. Yeah. In, you know what I mean? Or like, okay, like what is the next step? And like, let's like start taking action. Mm-hmm. I will say I'm good at that. Um, if you're going to make me give myself a compliment. <laughs> but I, I think for a lot of people, right? Like no one in life goes through life without challenges, without obstacles. I think a, one of the primary things that separates people is like how you deal with adversity. Definitely. It's coming for everybody. And let this be a lesson, you know, use this very like isolated experience that he shared with us is like, it is a choice as to how you react. It's a choice, the mindset that you approach that adversity with, you know, and ultimately like it's up to you. Mm-hmm. You can be a victim, right? You can be the type of person where everything happens to you, right? Like why does shit keep happening to me? Why does thing? Or you can take control for the good and the bad and you can like choose how you're going to react to it. And I just thought that was so powerful. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. What else are you thinking about while you're looking at me? I can't wait to do these on Instagram live because people are going to (laughs) see the looks that you shoot me while we do the show. I'm just, (laughs) what are you thinking? What's on your mind? No, I mean, that's, that's very much one of your characteristics. Right. But I think the takeaway here is folks might perceive that as like a trait. I'm going to throw it back to Colleen Hacker. Mm-hmm. I would argue it's a skill. Yeah, definitely. Now, people might start at a different place for whatever, some environmental or genetic reason. But like Colleen Hacker said, like these mental mental toughness, it's a skill. It's not a trait. Yeah. It's something you can build upon. Um, I think that is is something that uh, I really do hope people take from this because, it, like I said, adversity is coming. If you're having a good time now, enjoy it because there's some obstacle coming down the road and you're going to like be forced with how you're going to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. Man, I just could. I, I have a bunch of takeaways that I wish I could share, but I know I, I would just ramble on. It'd be a whole other podcast. Yeah. So cool. So cool. Just like the academic approach that he took to turning himself into this just a high level athlete. Really cool. Yeah. Cause it's, it was such a different direction to go in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, how do we do this to our children? <laughs> <laughs> People are listening and they're like those poor, poor kids. <laughs> this man started a podcast solely to learn. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be like the dad in little giants. Uh, you know, I don't know that I've seen. That Remember one. that spike? His dad used to used to massage massage his legs with buttermilk every oh. night. <laughs> Which now, like, spike. at this at this day and age, just so creepy. So creepy. But Spike was a hell of a football player. He just ran into the ice box, which was you know a buzzsaw. Oh. Uh, um. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Are you any of these references meaning anything to you? <laughs> No, uh, they're not. We, we got to get you to dig into Disney Plus. <laughs> we got to end this podcast. <laughs> uh, hey, we've got another really good one coming down the pike next week. Mm-hmm. A 
Bubba Jenkins. I'm excited about this one. Uh, it's outrageous. <laughs> if you're still listening, like just get ready for next week. It's by far the most outrageous conversation I've had yet. He is no holds bar. Fantastic guy. And he is a, I mean, I don't, a killer. I mean, he is a trained assassin is the only way I can describe it. And he has the personality to match. I think his career is about to explode. I'm pretty stoked that we got him on early. Exciting. You know, hey, you heard him here first. <laughs> Probably not. He's been doing big things for a while. But that's going to be an awesome one. Um, as I always say, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review. It really does go a long way. Helps folks find the show. Uh, if you want to reach out, follow us on Instagram at the underscore professional athlete, or you can email me, go to kengunter.com, check out the contact section. You can get a hold of us there. Anything else I'm missing, Zone? No, you covered it all, Kenny. Okay. Go put a shirt on. <laughs> You'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Alrighty. All right. Sorry, folks. This one got weird, but we appreciate you. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.